Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast, the podcast all about the good, the bad and the ugly of British policing. If you're interested in how policing works and you want to hear some incredible people talking about what they did in their policing careers, then this is definitely the podcast for you. Sometimes we cover some pretty gory or distressing subjects and there may be a bit of swearing from time to time. So probably best to keep the kids out of earshot. Right, here we go. Hello folks, welcome to episode 76 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. So this week I'm going to go completely off-piste and do something that I've never done before, but which I've definitely intended to do. So in this podcast and in the book I've written exclusively about policing. And I've spoken to, as you know, many people who have a background in policing and law enforcement to some extent or another, who've done some really interesting and frequently uh, heroic things in the course of their career. But what I've not done until now is speak to someone who has been on the other side of the fence in terms of living a criminal lifestyle and who has seen policing from the perspective of trying to avoid detection and capture and going through the criminal justice system, through the prison systems and all of those things. And this week I'm going to be speaking to a friend of mine called Craig. His name's Craig Bolgan. And as I explain in the podcast, I met Craig quite a few years ago. And uh, I would never in a million years have guessed that he had had led the life that he had led and that he will describe in this chat that we have. In fact, I can definitely say with 100% certainty that had I known the life that he had led at an earlier stage in his life, I would have very much kept my distance, I think. Um, but I'm very much of, a, of the mindset that you take people as you find them. And the Craig that I met at a much later stage in his life, uh, he was probably in his sort of mid to late 30s by then, was very much a family man, very hardworking, a professional builder, successful building company. And uh, he was there with his uh, wife and two beautiful children uh, who my kids made friends with and played with. And we became uh, friends and uh, went caravanning together uh, on a further occasion and, uh, you know, went for meals and things like that. And, and Craig told me nothing, literally nothing about his past. And but then obviously, as we got to know each other a little bit better, he disclosed uh, little bits and pieces, uh, disclosed that he had been in prison when he was a much younger man. And uh, and I, I was fairly uh, relaxed about that in the sense that I thought, well, you're clearly not leading that sort of lifestyle now. And um, everybody's got a past, haven't they? 
and he'd been to prison, he'd done his time, and that was that. He didn't really go into any detail about what he'd done to end up in prison. But then um, some months ago, uh, he was going through quite a difficult period in his life uh, due to the breakup of a relationship. And uh, he put some very honest stuff out on social media. And as I'm one of his Facebook friends, I, I read that stuff and I was really, really um, intrigued and kind of slightly horrified all at the same time. And I thought, wow, this is definitely someone I need to be speaking to on the podcast because uh, he knows me, I know him. Uh, he's a very, he wears his heart on his sleeve. He always has done since the since I first met him. And uh, and also I'm as confident as I possibly could be that he's not involved in that sort of lifestyle anymore. So on that basis, I invited him onto the podcast to chat to me. And um, yeah, this is our conversation. And uh, I hope you find it as interesting as I did. Oh, start video. Hang on. Hey, fucking hell. <laughs> what are you like? Oh, yeah. There's a start video. You, you actually had a button saying start video and you I, I, hadn't I pressed that. it. Oh, I my God. I had to scroll across the, and do all The stuff. shit that I've got to put up with on this podcast, I tell you. Oh, my God. God, yeah. <laughs> How are you doing? How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. I'm great. How are you? Yeah, it's good. Good to see you. Good to yeah, see you. Too. You're looking well, yeah. looking buff, looking buff. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it took a lot of hard work. Definitely, oh, I got four stone off in five oh, months. Mate. Four stone in five months. Yeah. Fucking heck. Yeah, no, what are you doing fighting people at Euro? How old are you? 43. 43. What are you doing getting in the ring at 43, you idiot? I've still got it. You still so got it. Still, <laughs> still capable. I saw, I saw, I saw, a, I saw a, a picture of the geezer you're going to fight next. I was like, oh, mate, what are you doing? He's going to fucking kill you. He's, like, <laughs> he, he's, a, he's a monster. He's a beast of a man. It's he like, is, what, yeah, he is. What, yeah, when, are you yeah. fight, when are you fighting him? Three weeks this Saturday. Oh, mate. Oh, so I'm mate. in final fight preparations at the minute. Oh, shit. Well, you know. I'll, I wish you well, mate, but you know what I mean? It's like, maybe it's just a double bluff. Maybe he's just a big, maybe he's about 14 stone with about, you know, man boobs and, <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe, that, maybe that's just a picture he's nicked off the internet or something, you know? <laughs> but he is an interesting character. He comes from uh, a tough, a tough uh, background. He had a legendary tough dad as well. So really? He, uh, oh, uh, yeah, from just down the road. So, yeah, he's... he's How old is he? Old he's he? 37. Oh God, mate! I'd rather you than me. That's all I'll say. The only, <laughs> the, the only way I'd pick a fight with him would be through a plate glass window, like in like Silence of the Lambs or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so you could jab him with a stick. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Listen, it's really good to see you. I mean, I know we're we're kind of Facebook friends and we kind of keep in touch and whatnot, but uh, uh, I'm I'm really I'm really grateful to you for agreeing to come on the podcast because. I think you've got a really interesting story to tell. And and I'd known you for, for quite a while, really, before I knew any of that stuff. And, you know, and um, uh, you were very honest and very, you know, open in terms of pouring your heart out. Um, some, I'm trying to think ago, it would have been maybe six months ago, something like that. 
And I was like, shit, I didn't know any of that stuff about him. Um, I kind of knew a little bit because you told me a little bit, hadn't you? About, yeah. about being in prison and stuff um, when you were much, much younger. Um, but I didn't know any of the stuff that you, you you kind of disclosed. And I just thought, shit, I've got to get Craig on the podcast because that is a really, really interesting story, uh, you know, in terms of your early life and all of that. And then, and then you know, how you've turned your life around, really. It's, uh, you know, because I, when I first met you, you were, you know, and are a successful builder, you know, you, um, uh, a kind of really kind of family man, um, yeah, and then to, to discover that you've had this kind of really crazy, crazy life in the years before that is just really fascinating, really fascinating. So, so yeah, you're yeah, happy, too. happy to chat all about that? Absolutely, yeah. You, you, I think you've got to know me reasonably well. I'm very honest about, the, the, you know, my past and the places that I've been. Uh, and, and I'm honest about it for a reason, you know, because uh, I don't... I, I don't I don't think it does you any good hiding from these things, and mm. I use it as positive as a positive thing now. So I don't see it as as necessarily a negative bad thing. I've I've, mm. I've turned it into something good, mm. and I, I'd like to think I my mission now is to help and inspire other people. Yeah. With, you know, with, with what you can do with your life, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. I've I've never let it hold me back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's never stopped me from achieving my any ambitions in my life at all. Mm. So uh, that's brilliant. I, I mean, if somebody had said to me, you know, your friend Craig, describe Craig, use just a few words to describe Craig, I would have said words would have said a a really good guy, really good guy, and super helpful. You know, one of these people who, if you were stuck in a, if you were in a difficult situation or stuck at the side of a road or you, in a, you know, in a pouring rain, this is the guy that would pull you out of the ditch and and drive you home uh oh you know what i mean it's like that you're that absolutely sort of, you, you are that sort of person you know and uh so yeah it's yeah. really fascinating but um listen let's let's get into the let's get into it in terms of let's just explain how we how we met so i um uh you and i uh met um caravanning didn't we so yeah those who listen to the podcast this is my my dirty little secret that i'm a caravanner and uh oh, no i'm not actually I'm, I'm proud of it actually i really l- love our caravan and um we and the family would go away we've been caravanning since the kids were really little and and we bumped into you didn't we in the cotswolds um i'm trying to yeah. think how many years ago that i mean it would have been about five or six years ago maybe something like that yeah probably yeah it might be longer than we we realized bloody hell yeah it would have been really in the early days of our caravan so let me think our kids are my kids are yeah i believe, I believe 10 and 11 now yeah, so probably yeah. would have been about seven or eight years actually ago, probably wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So time flies, doesn't it? It's I know, scary stuff. So, so we kind of hit it off, didn't we? And we had a good chat, and used to come right. We and then we went caravaning again together, didn't we? And uh, met up, and then you took me out around. Was it Donington? Where did we go? Cadwell Park? Ma- was it Mallory Park? It was Mallory Park. You took me out yeah. and scared the shit out of me, didn't me? Didn't you? Yeah, in my race car. In, in your crazy yeah. Renault Clio <laughs> Sport. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> Furious little car. <laughs> Very angry, fast little car that you drove at yeah. warp speed round Cadwell Park. Yeah. yeah, that was good fun. Really good fun. Um, yeah. yeah I, th- I thought I'd been fast in police cars before, but, oh, my God, that was a whole different experience for me. Yeah. You still racing? 
yeah, we are. We uh, we're racing at Silverstone, I think, later in the month in in Classic Sports Car Club uh, in Tin Top Series. So, yeah, we uh, we uh, me and a few friends now uh, are all there participating in, in Tin Top. So there's there's a few of us. I'm getting uh, a car ready at the minute as well. Oh yeah, uh, for myself. So I I go and help them guys at the minute. Another clear. Um, yeah, another Clio, uh, a better one than the last time, than the one that you went in. <laughs> Shit, <laughs> they're like yeah. unbelievably fast, aren't they? What was it? Hundred. What something, they are? Something yeah. stupid like a hundred and something, hundred and eighty odd horsepower, or something in a tiny little car. Yeah, we we get them pushing over two hundred horsepower now, and they're uh, they weigh about eight hundred and fifty kgs. Oh my so, god! So yeah, the, the the BHP per ton ratio is sky high, uh, and they just they're just animals in the corners because they, they're so light and agile you chuck them in the corners you don't really have to slow down you just chuck it in and hope for the best and uh, they just go around they're, they're unreal yeah brilliant so uh, yeah i remember that that uh, that time you took me up there i i um sweet talked a, a bloke to take me out in his mark one escort kind of rally car uh, that he that he pretty much built from scratch and that was that was absolutely unbelievable as well it was like yeah it was like sitting in the middle of a volcano the, the noise <laughs> the noise i've never heard anything like it was absolutely amazing so anyway sorry this is turning into a bit of a petrol head talk isn't it but uh, <laughs> yeah so listen that, that sets the scene in terms of how you and i know each other um so let's get into your background so you you sort of shared some stuff uh, recently on, on on Facebook, actually, I think you you know you were going through a, a difficult time, weren't you, um, following the breakup of a relationship? And you know you've always worn your heart on your sleeve, haven't you? And you know, and fair play to you for doing that. But um, uh, just talk talk me through um, your early life, really, because you talked about some stuff in that where I thought, oh God, um, sounds really grim. Your early life and you know, the difficult your difficult family life so let's start there shall we yeah yeah sure i think it'd be good to touch on the very beginning uh because i do actually come from a very good family mm. um we had I, I would i would probably say at the time the perfect family life i had two sisters you know, they were two uh, two years younger than me uh dad had a very good job he was an engineer I come from a good family my granddad was an engineer big man at plessy and beeston um uh, and, and yeah we i think you know, we we lived a good life, but unfortunately for me, um, I I was born with mental health problems, mm. and that that was probably where where it all started. The biggest problems in my life, and still to this day, mm-hmm. you know, um, they are my biggest challenge, and they always mm. will be. Mm. Uh, it's part of who I am, uh, unfortunately. But um, and do you, do you mind me do you mind me asking, were you were you sort of diagnosed at an early stage in your life, or was this only something you discovered later on? It was something later on. Unfortunately, they didn't understand the mental health problems that I had in the 80s. Mm. I never got a proper diagnosis. My mum dragged me from pillar to post uh, to loads of psychologists, probably from about the age of five or six. I remember very clearly mum dragging me out the door, literally by my ankles, and I was holding onto a a door because she was taking me to another psychologist, um, and I didn't want to go. so what, was, uh, I, what sort I, of behaviour, what, what were you doing at that age that was giving cause for concern? I, I would probably say it was ADHD. It's what we now know as ADHD. Right. Uh, I was very hyperactive. Uh, I, I struggled with concentration. Um, I, I, I bounced around like a maniac, an uncontrollable maniac. You, 
you, I, I, I would have to say, really, I probably put my mum through hell uh, at that stage of my life because mm. I was, I was totally uncontrollable. My dad was never there. He was a big, big businessman, uh, flying around the world a lot, and he didn't really mm. do that much with me and my sisters anyway. So right. it was all on my mum, and, mm. and my mum had to do everything for us. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd look back at that, and I feel so sorry for him because you know, I, I, being a parent now and yeah. seeing what some parents go through with their yeah. children, I often have a bit of a somber moment and reflect on how I used to be, mm. looking at looking at, how, at these the challenges that some children present. I, I I often reflect back at how I was, and you know I I must have put my mum through absolute hell. You know, for her to literally drag me out the door by my yeah. hands, yeah, she must have been very desperate. Oh, um, yeah. and, and I didn't want to go, but yes, I, I went to various psychologists. Some of the, the schools referred me to psychologists as well. Mm. Some worked, some didn't. Some some made me worse. It was a different. Um, it was a different time, wasn't it? A very different time. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't understand it. Yeah. yeah, they didn't have. I don't. I don't think they could diagnose the issues that I had at that time. Mm. Yeah, I think it was only in the later nineties that we really understood those things better. That, yeah. From what I understand of it, but yeah, but uh, but yeah, I, I just went around in circles for a long time, um, and nothing, nothing really worked. I got me under control. Mm. So uh, whilst I was bouncing around with those issues, um, I think the real catalyst of the uh, the major part of our family problems was when sadly my granddad took his own life on Boxing Day in 1987 oh, um, and it, it, it he kissed me and my sisters goodbye as he always did, he always came to see us on Boxing Day um, with my grandma and spent the day with us he kissed us all goodbye, went home and he took his own life oh, okay. um, and that that completely destroyed our family uh, and it you, is, were, you were close to him, were you? you, you I was, a... yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Because my dad was never there, hmm. I spent a lot of time with my granddad. A hmm. lot of time with my granddad because he was the next biggest male influence that I had in my life and, hmm. and something that I needed. I needed yeah. strong male influence. I didn't get that from my dad. Hmm. Um, I got that from my granddad. Uh, so I spent a lot of time with my granddad. My, my sisters were with my mum mostly. I was with my granddad. I, was, I think I was closer to my granddad than I was with my own dad. Hmm. Um, so when, yeah, when he took so his how old, life, how, how old were you then uh, when that happened? I think I was eight, eight or nine. Right. Okay. Um, uh, and, and my granddad was a very big figure of a man. Um, everyone thought the world of him hmm. uh, at work. He was, he was like a god at Plessing and Beeston, hmm. an absolute god. Everybody knew my granddad. Hmm. There were thousands of people who worked there. Um, and everybody knew him. Everybody knew my granddad. He was a big man. His name's Eric, Eric Bulgin. I'm named after him. I've got right. his, his middle name, Eric. So I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because he's, yeah. he is a good man. And, but yeah, the, the day he took his own life, it, it, it destroyed, destroyed us all, but it destroyed the family as well. And our family has never been the same since, really? since that day. Uh, still to this day. You know, a lot of bad things came out of that. Um, you know, my dad, uh, he, he went off a cliff mentally. Um, right. He was never the same person again. Uh, he could no longer bear to be in family home anymore because of the memories. So he moved us from Stapleford to Long Eaton, where we knew no one. Mm. And then and things just went from bad to worse from that because 
then my, I don't think my dad could bear to even be with us. Oh, so God. he ended up ha having an affair. Oh God! Um, I mean, you hear these. Mom, you talk about you talk about the the ripple effect, um, but in this case, it was more like a tsunami effect, wasn't it? It was uh, yeah. it had a huge impact on all of you. Yeah, it, it it was it was massive. Yeah, and yeah, my dad moved us away from my family home, away from my support network where we knew everybody, hmm. and um, he moved us to somewhere where we knew no one. And then, and then he had an affair. Mm. We we didn't know where he was. He didn't mm. even tell us where he was. Uh, my mum was in bits at that point. And but what was even worse than that, he accused my mum of having an affair. Mm. And in those days, if if in those days people were very funny about things like that. If mm. if you were in the wrong, everyone turned their nose up at you. No That's one right. spoke to you. So we were on our own in a place where we knew no one. And then my, all my mum's friends turned their back on us. Hmm. so we, we, it just it was unbelievable it, it went from one thing to the next to the next to the next and it it, it was shocking you know my mum already in a bad situation she was a housewife hmm. she didn't work she was relying on my dad to perform and go to work hmm. he left moved us somewhere where we had no one accused my mum of being the uh, cheater and then all our friends turned their backs on us my mum was on her own she was isolated she had a big hmm. mortgage to pay she ended up having to get a job, three kids, young kids, never, you know, not worked in married life before. It it was it was oh, it was hell, oh, absolute hell on earth. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. you know, we she was having to deal with all that while still dealing with a very difficult me, with yeah. Yeah, yeah, very deep rooted, serious mental health problems. Yeah. I, I, but then to add to that, I then lost the most important male influence that I needed. My granddad, hmm. my dad had left and repeatedly let us down. All the time when he was supposed to come and help me do things, come and see me, let me down constantly. I don't think I've still got over that. Right. I just still don't. I don't talk to my dad. Mm. And you know, my dad isn't a bad person. Yeah. Yeah. And I often say this to a lot of people. My dad isn't a bad person. He was just. He's just not a good dad. Yeah. He's yeah. very selfish. Yeah, um, I hear that. Be the person. I hear that an awful. Be. I hear that an awful lot. You know. It's, I, I think I told you I do work at the local hospice and, um, you know, there's a lot of people who I've heard say that over the years that that their dads um, or, you know, it could be their mums they're talking about, but tends to be tends to be dads, really. I think they're the ones who kind of gen generally historically, I suppose, for that generation or our generation. I mean, I'm a bit older than you, aren't I? But um, they tend to be the one who would leave and then... Um, and then that would often cause a massive family rift and it might be maybe 20 years before people would come back together and have a conversation as, as sort of adults at that stage but and a lot of people will say you know they're they're not a bad person but they just were a crap dad you know but, uh, yeah so so did yeah. your mom your mom then met someone else is that right yeah now this this uh next stage was the final nail in the coffin for me mm. unfortunately um which is the you think everything that i've said so far was bad enough and it is mm. bad enough mm. but the next stage was devastating um mm. my mom ended up getting with a new a new guy a year or two later mm. um, and at first it was all rosy um it was great it was a good, it seemed to be a good guy mum mum and uh well his name's phil i can't even best speak his name to be honest with you but because of what he did but Mm. But uh, but mum and Phil got married. Uh, everything was was great and uh, for a while, and um, we were trying to live a happy, normal family again. 
the family yeah. life again. It was great. But uh, Phil, Phil is ex-army. He was in the Falklands War. He was mm-hmm. in the Army Catering Corps. Legendary chef, brilliant at cooking. Uh, <laughs> very useful at home. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, started a catering company with my mum. Uh, they, they catered for Torval and Dean most years right. uh, for their big events. So uh, yeah, they did, they did some interesting things together. But mm. um, as my mental health issues uh, sort of evolved as I got a little bit older and got hormonal, should we say? Yeah. Um, got to that hormone stage. I, I was, and I got a, I, I could stand up for myself a lot more. I think kids reach a certain age, don't they? They fight mm. mm. back a bit, and mm. I'd certainly reached that stage, so I'd become more challenging. Mm. Phil's Phil's response to that, my stepdad, was to meet it with violence, and mm. um, and he he beat me up mm. many times, many times. Uh, the worst occasion. He chased me, he locked me, came in. I was in on my own. My, my sisters were at netball or something at school. I had walked in. He walked in and locked all the doors and put the key in his pocket. Mm. Uh, and then he came to me looking for a fight and he chased me around the house, beating the hell out of me. And I remember going to open one of the doors and I put my hand in the door and he kicked the door and it about broke my arm in two. I then got on the phone, I rang the police, he took the phone off me and smashed it in my face. Um, I ran upstairs. So how old were you when this was happening, Craig? 13 and 14. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, I, I then ran upstairs, got on the phone, barricaded the door, rang the police. Mm. The police turned up and took me away. My bomb mm. was very, very badly injured. Uh, there was mm. no denying what had happened. When the police turned up, yeah, it was only me and him in the property. And the door yeah. was locked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the police took me away. What was particularly bad on this occasion was uh, my mum. He Phil had been arrested, mm. and my mum defended him. Oh God! Um, uh, and that I think at that point, uh, my back was well and truly against the wall. I was done, mm. and I don't. I I I, I still don't think. Everybody realizes the damage that, that did to me at mm. that point. Mm. Uh, I needed at that point. I needed out. I needed a way. Yeah. I, I had to get out of that house. So, yeah, m- my mum defended him uh, at the time, and he got released. And she just said to the police, "I was just a naughty kid, and I and I deserved it, or you know, mm-hmm. somewhat. You know, I I was out of control." And again, these are different times, aren't they? I mean, I like I like to think that you know, if that happened today, then there would be a completely different response from the police. But I suppose, again, this has gone back to the days when the police would have just written this off as a as a domestic or something, wouldn't it? Involving a out of control teenager having a fallout with a an adult male, and they probably would be more inclined to take the word of the adults rather than the child now, whereas I like to think today they would have given the child a voice to actually say, well, you know, what actually happened here? And I, 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 would, I would doubt very much whether that would have been the same outcome today that it had been when, you know, you're describing, but who knows, who knows, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd like to think it'd be better, um, you know, 
hard to say. I mean, every, every, every situation is different. I understand mm. I was challenging. I certainly didn't deserve the course of action that Phil took. No. Um, you know, God, if, if I saw that bloke now, I don't know what I'd do to that mm. man. I mean, he'd be an old man now. I, mm. I couldn't lay my hands on an old man, but mm. if he was of a capable age, I, I don't know what I'd do to him in all honesty. Right. So um, they're, obviously, uh, they're obviously not together anymore, your mother and him? No, no, because um, after after that, after a few incidents like that, I needed out of that house. So at that point, that's when I started running away quite a lot. And uh, mm. that's where my offending started. Right. So how did it start in the first sort of the earliest stages? Were you knocking about with uh, other boys of the same age or older or whatever? How did it, how did it all start? Yeah, but bizarrely, um, usually I think when people start getting into offenders by hanging around with the wrong crowd, well, that did come at, for me later on. But initially mm. it didn't for me. I was just going out at night with tools, messing about with cars, mm. um, trying to get a car going. Um, yeah. So I could run away, yeah. and I actually worked out how to steal a car on my own, mm. completely on my own, with no help at all. Bearing mm. in mind, in them days, no Google either. There's no internet. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, I stole a Nova from a garage at the end of the road where my mum actually worked. She worked on the petrol station, and on the side of it was a car forecourt. Mm. I stole a Vauxhall Nova. Mm. Um, I did it all on my own, and I, I used that to just escape from the world. For a little bit, um, you know. So we just out. going out. We just going out and tazzing around in this Nova, and you know, yeah, on your own. And, and did you? Uh, so that's the first time. Presumably, that wasn't the last time. Then, no, no, that that was the first time. Um, I bragged about it to some school friends. They grasped me up as you do. Everybody talks, and that got back to teachers, mom, and then Mark Welbury, who owned the car, car forecourt. Um, he found out, um, and then I had to. Um, I admitted it in the end. The police mm. were involved. Mark Welby didn't want to suppress charges because he, he knew my mum. Mm. So in the end, I uh, offered to um, work for him for free mm. for a period of Saturdays washing cars to yeah, yeah. pay back, you yeah. know, some form of debt, the damage of what I'd done, mm. um, and that, and and that. Um, kept me on the straight and narrow for a little bit but the problems mm. at home hadn't just disappeared mm. so I, I think at that point I'd got uh, um, it had opened a different door in my life and so I, and I kept going back to that and then I stole an MG Maestro um, mm. and went tazzing around in that mm. crashed, crashed that down at a Greenwich Reserve and I think they rolled it in the lake yeah. uh, I, I rolled it in the lake and then um, Another, I think I stole a Cavalier SRI after that, mm. uh, tazzing around in that. Um, and then I bumped into some other people, uh, some oh. of the lads that were out stealing cars. Yeah. So, and I bumped into them at a car park, messing about. Um, and then that opened the door to a whole different world. Yeah. Um, uh, of, of bad behavior. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, were they, were they, were they a bit older than you or? No, similar age, um, all similar ages. Um, mm. Some of them had come from much uh, very unstable backgrounds. Mm. Um, yeah, and yeah, that 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 then led me down a path of a whole different level of offending. Right. We were going out as, as groups. We were then stealing cars to order right. um, for people to ring. 
and then mm -hmm. we got noticed by some very big people um yeah. and we were we were we were stealing car parts and cars for very big money yeah, um, yeah. We, we was doing that at 17 18 and 19 years old right um uh, so when was then, the when was the first time you sort of had a, your first brush with the law so to speak well that it was at the first the, the first over i stole i did get pulled in for that right um but because mark welby didn't want to press charges mm. um that sort of that 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 got left to the police officer's discretion yeah uh and left alone so nothing come of that because i was very young at that point i was uh i must have been 14 15 mm. um uh but but yeah i um i think i got it i started getting noticed more by the police i would say when i was 15 right. um i i i stole an mg metro and i wanted mm. a big i needed a big payday to move away from home mm. and um i ended up breaking into the school to steal all the computers right uh, and I did that, and I stole all the computers for quite a lot of money. Oh, bloody hell. Um, and I opened my mouth about that at school, bragging about mm. it. Um, mm. And and uh, because nobody believed I did it, I did it again, right. uh, just to prove a point. And then it's at that point I got more noticed by the police mm. uh, at 15 years old. Um, right. I was well on, the, well on the radar then. Mm. Uh, whilst that offending was going on there was still the offending with the group stealing cars it just snowballed it massively snowballed it i was i was off the scale and just uh, for uh just for those listening um so you you sort of born and bred nottinghamshire weren't you um yes so, so this is all this is all around nottinghamshire this is going on i take it yeah yes it is yeah i was born in stapleford most of the offending uh um, was was around the beeston and stapleford in nottingham area Right. Um, I only went travelled more into Derbyshire later later on, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, but yeah, it's mostly Nottinghamshire. Right. Okay. So um, so you're obviously hooked up with some more experienced, more sort of determined um, young up and coming criminals, which is then bringing you into the world of organised crime, I suppose, in the sense that you're supplying cars and car parts to a much sort of much bigger sort of organizations um what was your what were your feelings around that time you know was this something you enjoyed um did you feel any sense of what you were doing was wrong or was it just was it just fun it was a bit of all that i would say the adrenaline gave you a buzz um it was like a natural high so mm. it was yeah, it was it was a bit of a buzz, getting out at night, getting up to stuff. There was a form of camaraderie with, you know, the people that you're with, mm. um, and it was a challenge as well. It got it, it got the brain going. It was all it was all a big challenge, um, and that's why the cars got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, you start off with the cheap, easy cars, and then as the challenge gets bigger, you see a car and you're like, Ooh, see if we can do that. Mm. Um, uh, yeah so cars have always I mean, always been a thing for you haven't they i mean you've you've always been a petrol mm. head haven't you and i remember you mm. telling me when we first met about some of the cars that you had had over the years and um so you're obviously you're obviously really into cars uh and i've been in a car with you at cadwell park and you're a fantastic driver um 
terrifyingly fast. Um, so did you get, was that when you got your, you know, you got bitten by that bug for high speed driving in those days? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. Um, yeah, I'd say so. I mean, back in them days, I was I was already known for being a bit of a driver in those days, even though I was, didn't even have a license and mm. I was very young. Um, I I was a very clever driver. Mm. Um, still to this day, and the police knew it as well. I've never been caught in car, mm. um, ever, and 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 it wasn't due to erratic stupid driving it was down to clever driving mm. uh, I, I didn't I, I mean some of the chases you see on police camera action i never agreed with what people did uh there's certainly you know mountain curves and pedestrianized areas i, I would have never dreamed of doing that and mm. um, i would i would have, if it was a busy day broad daylight i'd have just pulled over and got out of the car mm. i wouldn't dream of trying to move people over but because mostly what we did was at night time it was quiet and the roads were quiet but I was very good at being fast. Yes, as, mm. as, as you're well aware, I could be extremely fast and very controlled. Mm. Um, but I was very good at. I always, I always told everybody else to always change direction, always box back on yourself, box back on yourself again and again and again. Change your direction constantly. Never travel in the same line, straight line for very long. And mm. um, and I had other tactics as well that we used to employ. We used to have cars that we left in certain positions. If we did get chased, we could switch cars, go to one of those drop points mm. and change cars very quickly if we needed to. Mm. Um, because staying in the same car for too long when you're getting chased is, mm. is a bad idea. Yeah. Um, all the police are zoning in on you. So we used to leave cars parked up in villages and towns, mm. just out of the way, um, stolen, ready to go. Yeah. If we needed to change vehicles, um, we could do it very quickly. And that's... Did, so you, that's, ever, that, that, did you ever have the helicopter up above you? Yeah, I did once, famously. I got away from that very easily. I drove into a bus station. Oh, yeah, under the, con yeah. Under the concrete roof. Yeah. Yeah. The Victoria bus station in Nottingham. Wiped the car, walked through the Victoria bus station, took my, took my top off, I had a cap on, took the cap off, took the jump off, threw it in the bin, walked out the front, got the bus home. Hmm. What about police dogs? Get chased by police dogs? Yes, uh, a police dogs had me once. That was yeah. good. That was good. Yeah, fair play to the dog. And yeah, it's, it caught me hiding in a Wendy house in the back garden. <laughs> yeah, I, I, shouldn't, I, I shouldn't be laughing. I don't know why I'm laughing. The thing is, mate, the thing is, from, from, an Ill, from the old Bill point of view, we've, I've been on the other end of these many, many, many times. And it is fun. It is fun. I'd be, yeah. li I'd be lying yeah. if I said it wasn't fun. Of course it's fun. What's not, what's not fun about that? You know what I mean? Either yeah. from, a, from a police point of view, it was one of the best things we'd ever do. Some of these pursuits, you know, I'm not saying that to encourage people to steal cars, obviously, but, um, you know, it is one of those things that really gets everybody uh, going, you know, and particularly when they're off, the doors are open and they're off on their toes. And then it's, uh, you know, game of hide and seek in the dark. Uh, yeah. Involving yeah. maybe the helicopter and the dogs and it were a combination of both. So it is, it's a, it is fun, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. I've been caught by the helicopter on foot. I've been caught by a dog on foot. I've evaded capture by the narrowest margins. I, I'll get onto one, probably the, the most insane story in a minute. But, but yeah, the dog, the dog had me in a Wendy house in, in a garden once, and it had a good chomp on my leg. 
I was talking to it. I was like, hello, nice doggy. I was stroking it. <laughs> I, I could never be horrible to a dog. I'm a dog lover. I love dogs. So, you know, I had a good chomp on my leg. I mean, I think a, a lot of people are just screaming, like screaming for their life because the dog's bitten. But, mm. you know, I've had many years of, uh, of martial arts and pain is is just an everyday occurrence for me. I can deal with that quite well. So <laughs> the dog mm. had, he was drawing blood on my leg. You know, blood was trickling down my leg and he was oh. dragging it as well. He was like, rrr, rrr. I was like, yeah, yeah, have a good chew of that, mate. Have a good chew. And I was trying to talk to it and, uh, but it wasn't having it. The, the police officer jumped over the fence and he was like, come on, get out of there, mate. I was like, how can I get up when I've got a dog hanging off my leg? <laughs> Call your dog back and I'll get up. Um, and then, yeah, lucky for me, I've very rarely been caught on foot. Um, that was probably one of only two occasions I've ever been caught on foot. Um, I've never been caught in a car. Um, I, I, I got caught mostly through um, people grassing us up or DNA. Mm. or fingerprints so um you know yeah i i I didn't very often get caught on foot luckily enough Uh, there was there was i had a very narrow miss once um we went to steal uh a cavalier sri uh one of the later models Mm. and we were just getting the car going just getting into it just about to get it started there's five of us you know uh, uh working on this and plenty of people watching up and down the street and in those days, at night time, when it's deadly quiet in the middle of summer, you can hear a pin drop. Mm. Well, we know the sound of a T5, mm. clear as clear as day at night time. We, yeah. we could hear it coming probably for so, five For those listening, that's a Volvo T5, which was the fast response kind of car for the interceptors, wasn't it? Yes, it was, yeah. And we knew exactly what it was straight away. Well, <laughs> before I even turned around, all my mates had gone. <laughs> I don't know what direction they went in, but I turned around and I was like, lads, lads, gone, absolutely gone. So I was like, whoa. And then before I knew it, headlights and T5 were at the end of the road. So I mm. literally just dived behind maybe only a three foot fence. Mm. And uh, there was a street light on the other side of the road directly from where I was. What I didn't know was, I th- when I dived behind this fence, I thought, I'm getting caught here. The T5 stopped right next to me. Literally right next to me. Now I could see through a crack in the fence, I could see the police officer get out of the car. They were literally within three foot of me. Um, but what was funny, because there was a street light directly across the road, it cast a pitch black shadow straight over me. Mm. And they couldn't they couldn't see me. Mm. And so the T5 pulled up, they went running around everywhere. Somebody a woman in a window had rang the police officer. I saw her come out. I heard her talking to the police. Then another a panda turned up, which is you know, what, what, mm. which was a Voxel Astra, we called them pandas. Yeah. And then another one, then another one, then another T5. So there was at least five police vehicles there, probably several officers, or at least, you know, it could have been as many as 10. I saw them all go darting in every direction across all the gardens, torches on everywhere. Little did they know was, I was right underneath the feet, um, yeah. <laughs> right next to him. And yeah. one literally jumped over me across the garden. I thought, oh God, this, Mm. They've got me here. Yeah. And he, went, he jumped over me, he went running across the garden, shined a torch up and down that way, and then he went out through the gate. Yeah, yeah. Didn't go yeah. back in my direction. Yeah, well, I know exactly what you mean, because I've, <laughs> I've, been, I've, been, I've been literally feet away from suspects who are hiding um, underneath undergrowth uh, brambles or whatever, or, you know, literally close enough to touch them, and I haven't seen them. And it's only the helicopter will obviously, you know, uh, talk you in. To them and uh and i've 
it's very strange, it's a very weird thing in the middle of the night, you know, you, you literally can't see anything. And um, yeah, and then the helicopter will say, you'll be, t- you'll be draw- talking directly to the to the observer in the helicopter and say, he's right in front of you. He's literally, you could, if you reach out to your right, you'll be able to touch him. I'll go, I'm sorry, I can't see anything. That must be very, yeah. that must be very strange for the person. It's a, it's probably just as strange for the person hiding as it is for the person looking for them, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when, uh, so what in in all of these dealings uh, in your sort of early part of your criminal career, I suppose, um, what what were your general uh, how were you treated by the police whenever they dealt with you? Um, were they were they rough with you or were they fair with you? How did you find them? Now, bear in mind that I must have been arrested hundreds of times, hundreds of times. I mean, my my nothing to be proud of but my criminal record is pretty extensive mm. um some probably 30 or 35 odd pages long i've been told by one police officer but but uh yeah it's, it's pretty extensive uh arrested hundreds of times now i can say hand on heart that um every single police officer i've ever dealt with has always been right with me as long as you're right with them mm. they'll be right with you and i've never had a single bad incident with the police happen at all mm. um i've never resisted arrest mm. i've i've um i've always cooperated mm. and i find if you cooperate with them they're absolutely fine with you yeah yeah um, I, i've i've never ever had a bad incident happen i can't say a single bad word, word about the police well that 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 sort of that's definitely rings true to me because i in my experience again you know you've been arrested hundreds of times i've arrested hundreds of people um and the only time that it all tends to go off at Haydock or goes off goes really badly wrong is when the suspect that you're trying to deal with is physically aggressive or just being a complete twat. And and that that you know requires you to sort of up the ante a little bit. I'm not talking about beating people up, I'm just talking about being very firm and robust in the way that you deal with them. And mm. um but I can remember dealing with you know quite a few people like you the way you describe yourself as a young man in those days and and some of them some of these lads were really really like really really likable you know and and of course we we understand the psychology of the brain and adolescent development and the impact of adverse they call them aces adverse childhood experiences we understand all that stuff a lot better now um certainly a lot of the young men that I dealt with in the early part of my career I can remember thinking this lad is really really bright really bright and and they're probably bored bored with what life can offer them in in the conventional sense so they're finding they're finding an outlet for their intelligence and I know from you know having spoken to you and sat having a beer with you and sharing a meal with you and all of those things that you are a very very intelligent man you know so you would have been a very intelligent teenager and clearly the fact that you had this very active mind that was figuring things out um trying to figure out so you know how can i steal this car what is different between this car and the car i stole two days ago or whatever so so i'm pleased i'm I'm pleased here i'm pleased to hear that the police were were fair with you and um yeah, so 
So obviously your your luck was always going to run out uh, in terms of getting caught. Uh, when, so when was the first time you got a custodial sentence then? I believe uh, I, I was either 16 or very, only just 17 at the time. Um, it, I, I, uh, I believe I, I was 16 when I, I committed a load of offences and then I, was mm. seven, I turned 17 and went to prison. Um, and things just kind of snowballed. I knew I was going to prison mm. and I got bail. And um, so I, I went on the rampage uh, mm. because I didn't care. Uh, I saw it as, as, a, as a bit of a, an escape, a bit of an exit. Um, so so, you, were, so you're, 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 on, you're on bail, were you, at the time, whenever yeah. you, you're awaiting, awaiting sentencing or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Right. So I, I just kept going. Um, and in the end, uh, somebody, uh, a bad incident happened with one of my sisters. A guy uh, tried to force himself on one of my sisters. Mm. So I, I uh, went around and petrol bombed every single vehicle on his drive. God. Uh, and caused hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of damage. Uh, and then I admitted it as well. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, and I was looking at a, for, looking at a very long time in prison for that. Oh, God. Um, uh, but I didn't care. I really didn't care. Looking back at that, I really didn't care. I knew I was going. Mm. Um, uh, and it was, a, it was a bit of a, I suppose, it looked like I was the big bad man to be mates, thinking I'm going to prison. But uh, so that ultimately, that, that expression that you said there, I didn't care, and I've heard that so many times. And if I haven't actually heard those exact words from young men who are doing that kind of stuff, by their actions, that's what they are making clear. They're clear. They're making it clear that they just don't care, um, mm. because they've got this kind of self-destruct. They've got the self-destruct mechanism or button and they've pressed it and they just don't give a shit anymore mm. what do you think what would it have taken you at that stage in your life to have to sort of stop doing that with is there do you think there's anything that anyone could have said or anything they could have done to redirect your destructive behavior at that time you know that 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 is a really interesting question. Uh, certainly something I've never put any thought to. I was running it through my mind then, just as you were getting to that. And I think about the only thing I could probably say is that at that point in my life, I needed strong male influence. Mm. But it needed to be an authoritative figure that I respected. And there would have only been one of two people that could have done that. Mm. And my, my mum used to plead with my dad constantly, saying, Craig needs you, Craig needs you to help him. Mm. He never he never really gave me the help that I needed. You know, mm. he, well, he didn't step up and be the dad that I needed. Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that, that, that that's his fault, um, it's, but it's part of the bigger picture. Mm. And I needed strong male influence. I needed mm. it. I, I craved it. Um, I, I definitely needed that. My mum wasn't. My mum has been an absolutely legendary, amazing mum. She really is. I can't speak highly enough of her. Um, she had to put up with so much. And yeah, she, I was just—that was going to be um, my next question. What was your? What was? How did your mum react to all of this stuff? Because I imagine you've got the old bill around your house almost on a daily basis at yeah. this stage, haven't you? Yeah, you know, 
again, you know, I, I put my mum through so much hell for so long. I, I don't know how she kept it together. She had to keep it together for my sisters. Um, but even at that point, you know, things just were just going from bad to worse for her and because of me. Um, and then ultimately knowing that I was going to go to prison, you know, it must mm. have been, I got expelled from school after I burgled the school with computers. I never sat my exams. Mm. I left school with nothing. I left school with no GCSEs, um, which, is, which is quite kind of ironic really mm. now, considering where I've got myself, you know, in life. Mm. But, um, but, but yeah, my mum, I, I think my mum would probably say that she struggled a lot more than she ever said. Mm. Um, but she had to keep it together for my sisters. I know for a fact that she did plead with my dad a lot to, to mm. get him to come and help. My dad's only just, response to that. Just out of curiosity, sorry, sorry, sorry I interrupted well, you on your dad's response to that was? His response was to turn up and shout at me. And I remember the last time he did it, he picked me up clean off the floor, up the wall, mm. shouting at me at the top of his lungs. And he doesn't know it, but that was the day that I I lost my dad. I felt mm. because in my head mentally, my dad didn't exist after that point. And, and was your stepdad still on the scene at this stage? No, my mum realised after I started getting trouble with the law and getting arrested, she then realised the damage that he'd done mm. and she got rid of him. Right. Um, yeah, he 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 was off the scene. I, admittedly, I think because I was I wasn't at home a lot much at all because I was running away all the time, getting in trouble with the law, mm. sofa surfing. I'd disappear for days on end. Mm. At what point Phil got asked to leave? I couldn't tell you. I couldn't even remember if that was when I was in prison or not. But mm. um, but yeah, at some point Phil wasn't there. Um, mm. It was only probably a decade later that I, that I really got the truth from my mum and. Mm. And she told me when she, and why she asked him to leave. She realised he was very damaging to me and my sisters, mm-hmm. and she realised recognised the damage that he'd done. Um, but but um, but yeah, I uh, I don't I'm not sure exactly at what yeah. point Phil left. So so you go to prison. Which prison did you go to? Was your first prison? Glen Parver. Parver, yeah, yeah. So, so, one so, of... so you're you're Nottinghamshire, and I was when I was a sergeant. Uh, I was a sergeant at Coventry, so a lot of our young young lads who you know, we're, we're leading a similar lifestyle to yours, I suppose, ended up at Glenparva as well. So, so what was your, what were your, yeah. what were your experiences like at Glenparva? Yeah, well, I got two, a two year sentence. Um, and yeah, I went to Glenparva in, God, 97. Mm. I think it was January, January 97. Um, and uh, I'd got my sentence in adjourned. Uh, till just after Christmas, kept putting mm-hmm. sick notes in, um, and and because I cooperated with the police, they give me bail all the time. Mm-hmm. So I managed to get my sentence in adjourned till just after Christmas. I think I got sent down on seventh of January, ninety seven, for the first time, if I remember correctly. And yeah, bit of a shock to the world. Unit ten, Glen Parva, uh, no TVs in those days. I ended up in in cell three sixteen, unit ten, on mm-hmm. my own with nothing other than my induction form, A4 piece of paper, induction form, a blue cup and a blue plastic knife, fork and spoon. And that was it for the first 24 hours, well, 23 hours till I got out of here. And that's a young, that's a young offenders institute, isn't it? So it's not, a, it's not an adult prison, yeah. is it? No, it was uh, one, one of the most, one of the more notorious young offenders institutes in the country. Yeah. Probably the second most uh, notorious one, to be fair. 
there were there were there was a worse one, um, the one in Birmingham, I think. But um, but yeah, Glen Parva was was a hellhole, was an it? absolute hellhole. Yeah, yeah. So did you share a cell um, from that time on, or did you? Were you? You? How long were you on your own for? I was I was on my own for I think the first day or two, hmm. um, and then I did get a cellmate. Hmm. Um, I always I mean having a cellmate was great, um, but uh, I don't smoke and everyone smokes in there, so hmm. I end up you know it, it, it was it was horrible having a padmate most of the time because I've got asthma hmm. and people smoking in the room makes me wheezy. I was, that that aspect was was never nice for me. Hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, I. I first time in there i think first few nights was interesting because i had people because i was new mm. i'd have people banging on the walls and chatting out the window going yo 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 pad 316 get your toilet brush push the water out of your toilet i was like what sod off you must be having me on here mm. and like, no no honestly we're not having you on you can talk down the toilet i was like yeah what not having any of that but in the end um i end up doing it you get your toilet brush push the water out of your toilet and it was like a telephone, oh, like a prison network, network telephone. And when I say it was crystal clear, it, it was as good as this line now. Really? You know, it, you could talk to your cells either side, above and below, you know, it, oh, and you'd be there God. every evening just, just chatting to, to the neighbours. <laughs> That's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. And um, so daily life there, is there any attempt whatsoever to rehabilitate and educate young prisoners like you in those days or was it just bang up yeah yeah well lucky for me um and this is something that has set me up for my whole life um i was offered education i don't think it's pushed as hard as it it should have been back then you you didn't have to do it a lot of people don't do it Mm. um but you know looking at prison with the head that i've got now you know, you should do every course and every every bit of education that you can. Why waste your time in there? Mm. Um, use the time to your advantage. And and that, for me, was a game changer. I I was already working in the building trade when I left school. Um, I was a labourer, uh, bricklaying apprentice. Um, and I started picking up a bit of brickwork. So when I went to Glen Parva and I had all that time in my hands, I got offered a bricklaying course. Mm. So I did my city and guilds bricklaying in there, mm. uh, which which I didn't I, I I didn't really fully understand how powerful that was at the time. Yeah, uh, and you know I can say hand on heart still to this day, because of that I've never been unemployed. Mm. Mm. Um, and you know I, I've done a lot of other educational courses in there. Every time mm. I went in, I was I was like education, education, joinery, plastering, tiling. Plumbing. I'll do it all. Anything I can do. Not bothered. <laughs> so people people often criticize uh prisons, particularly young offenders institutes, as being like universities of crime. In other words, you put together a load of dysfunctional young men who are involved in all sorts of different types of crime. And the only thing that you actually achieve is that you they get better at what they um d- when they come out, they've got more knowledge about how to evade arrest and uh, get into different types of buildings, different types of cars. I mean, what was your experience of that? Did you find that to be the case? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yes. You, uh, yeah, you think you're pretty good at what you do um, until you go in there and then you hear, 
how good everyone else is and then you, you suddenly realize you're the amateur so right. yeah yeah you do get to learn of more devious ways of doing things more serious crime you expand your networking uh, mm. a lot more you get connected to it to much bigger people but worse people yeah you come out with a you know a bigger contact book um mm. it's never a good thing uh, don't get me wrong i i did a lot of education in there and that helped that helped set me up in later life mm. but at the time I, I i i then plunged more into uh other forms of crime you know mm. I, I i discovered that you could get make a lot of money from fraud um mm. i learned that in there i used to go to petrol stations and at night time and take the bin bags mm. because in those days um when you get your credit card receipt and paying for your fuel mm. your all your details were on your copy of the receipt and mm. you know and everyone chucks them in the bin yeah, yeah. So we used to go and nick the bit black black bin bags from petrol station forecourts because then we'd have credit card details, mm. people's credit card details. Mm. And even though in them days you didn't need the postcode or somebody's address, you know, we used to ring shops and order PlayStations. We used to order bang and awesome stereos and just mm. go in with some fake ID of the person. Yeah. Um, we, we had their initial and their surname and we'd just mm. scream a name up, go make some fake ID, order mm. for stuff over the phone say oh i'll come and pick you up in a bit go in mm. we, we we were ordering alloys um off off demon tweaks offline uh, sorry over the phone in them days but yeah we, we 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 discovered a whole new avenue of of crime yeah uh, from spending the so day long, time how long did you actually so you got two years you got sentenced to two years at parva um how long did you actually do Luckily for me, I had a lot of police days because I'd been arrested for so many different things. God knows how I kept getting bail. I was mm. I was on bail pending further inquiries for several different things, in fact. Mm. And they just kept giving me bail because I was I was never a problem to the police. I was mm. always honest, open yeah. when I could be. Um, and uh, I kept getting bail. So when I actually finally got sentenced, my charge sheet was pretty extensive. Mm. Um, um it was it was it was it was well out of control but uh because i'd spent so long in police custody mm. i think i had 16 days police days to come back right so i, I got them back um and i didn't even serve the christmas i think mm. i got out on december the third right not the same year 97 right um so i didn't even serve a christmas because i got it Adjourned. So you got a, you were released on on license then with yeah after about just under a year then okay yeah that's right so yeah so um, would it, would it be fair to say then that you just basically went straight back to it again yes <laughs> and was that was that always your when you came out of prison did did you have any inkling that you thought like I'm gonna I'm going to sort of sort myself out here or was it was it were you very determined as soon as i get out of here i'm going to go straight back to doing exactly what i was doing before coming in here um weirdly no i didn't sit there and think this is what i'm going to do um it was just linking up with the same the same crew again and uh trying to just get some money together again to buy a car legitimately pass the test but i was banned so yeah it was I was, uh, and then you just end up, you just end up falling back into the same rhythm again, same yeah. thing, yeah. but with with some more ideas, full of more ideas from the time in prison, and then 
Mm. And then I explained those ideas to the rest of the team. And then I think I evolved into becoming a bit of a ringleader, to be honest with you, because mm. I was more, I became more educated. Yeah. I, I certainly, my biggest problem was I had, I had, I had the biggest balls. Mm. Uh, I was fearless, absolutely fearless. But, you know, looking back at the person I was in those days, it's terrifying. I, you know, I've, I've had guns to people's heads and took the car off them. Um, I've done some very serious things. Mm. Um, and that's because, yeah, I was fearless and I had, I had big balls. Uh, that became a bit of a ring full of ideas. So we, we ended up going down a very dark road after that. Mm. What, so what do you mean very dark road in terms of the more, the, the more serious end of criminality? I mean, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, the things went up several, several steps for sure. Mm. Um, the, the offending went off the scale. It went in many different directions. It wasn't just cars. It became violent. It became other things. You know, mm. uh, there were there were other avenues, many other avenues of offending. Did you get involved in drugs? At that point, no, never mm. involved with drugs. At that point, um, that came later. Mm. That mm. came much later. Um, I went through a process of getting in trouble with the law, offending, getting locked up. I was in and out prison like a yo-yo, recalled on license many times. Mm. Um, and, and then the case, I think the last the last time I was in prison, I was on a B wing Nottingham, um, HMP Nottingham, um, and uh, that was in two thousand three. Mm. Ironically, it's coming up to the twentieth anniversary. I think it was April two thousand and three or March when I was last in prison. And mm. um, at that point, I decided I needed to turn my life around. I needed to stop this because. Mm. every time I got sent down my mum was there my sisters were there crying their eyes out you know and I put them through hell years of hell it mm. needed to stop it really did need to stop um, and and that's then when I recognised what needed to be done and it, I didn't realise at the time but it, I, I had to cut ties with that group of friends and mm. uh, I changed it was all about social circles this is what I talk, how I talk about it now if you really want to make change in life sometimes you have to change your social circles mm. to make that change because it's those people who drag you down or you're just not good together i was the ringleader mm. but we weren't good together we were dragging each other down yeah. um so yeah i came away from that group of friends went in another direction and then i created a new social circle mm. but i still needed a buzz in my life i still needed something exciting and fun in my life but at that point when i was 23 uh it then became drinking drugs not right. not selling it I was taking it right, uh, and so that's, just, that's when. The, so before we move on to that phase of your life, um, what 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 offense you were if you were going backwards and forwards to prison between the ages of whatever, seventeen and twenty three, what were the sort of offenses you were going to prison for in the latter stage of your, of your of your criminal lifestyle, I suppose. Well, well, weirdly, I mean, the offenses that I got caught for didn't get worse because I got I got better at doing what I was doing. Mm. I actually, the more serious stuff that I've done, I can't still necessarily talk about to this day because I mm. never got caught. For it. Mm. Um, I've done armed robberies. Mm. I've done. I've held guns to people's heads and took cars off them. Um, mm. And I, and those offences I've never been caught for. Some pretty bad things that are that severe that mm. I, I should have never really seen the light of day again. Mm. Uh, I was very, I was very lucky 
uh, to get away with the things that I've done. Mm. But in, in, what I got caught for in, in the later stages of that criminal career was, was actually mostly driving whilst disqualified. I'd got, I'd moved away from the car crime stuff, moved on to other things, and everybody mm. knows me back then. I'm well aware of that. But I was, I never had a license, so I just kept, I was just driving a legitimate car. It wasn't necessarily yeah. stolen. Yeah, yeah. I had enough money to buy a car. But I just kept doing, getting, get, getting done for driving whilst disqualified. So I think the last three or four prison sentences I ever had were, were driving whilst disqualified. So, so you obviously started getting involved in drinking drugs, as you said. Uh, what did someone introduce you to drugs, or was that something? I mean, I, I imagine most of the people that you were knocking about with those in those days would have been involved to some extent or another with drugs. I'd imagine. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, I think I, I, I discovered the party scene more than anything. Um, I ended up, oh, good choice of drink, by the way. Yeah, well, I've got a uh, kind of cider. Well, it's nice. Classy. It's classy, isn't it? I can't, I can't drink it with it. I'm, I'm preparing for this fight. I'm, I'm willing to be a calm drinking zone. So um, I've, 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 I'm on the hard, hard stuff. I'm sure it's not, but <laughs> yeah. So, um, so any drugs? What, um, what was it? What uh, had you had you always been? Let's talk. Had you always been a drinker? Had you always enjoyed a drink at that stage in your life, or was that not something? You... No, I, I, I think I missed that whole stage of my life because I was in trouble with the law, going out doing what I was doing. I didn't do what most typical teenagers did, and which was going out, getting drunk with a mate, having a good time. Mm. I, I, I seem to have missed that whole stage. Mm. So when I finally discovered it when I was 23, it was like, boom, here we go, party time. Drinking, nightclubs, disco tablets, pills, all sorts of stuff. It, it, I've, never, I've never been a smoker. I hate smoking, so you don't get me smoking nothing. But anything I could sniff or eat, down the actually went. Mm. You know, mm. and I turned into an absolute monster when it came mm. to taking drugs. And mm. um, I've I've took you know I've took enough pills in one night before to kill an elephant. It's I don't know how the hell I survived it. My mum often said she she used to sit there on a Friday night waiting for the phone to ring, wondering when it was going to be the police telling I'm I was dead. Mm. You know, she 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 openly says that quite a lot, and you know, again, you know, I put my mum through hell, and here I am trying to turn my life around, and mm. I've kind of done that in one way, but then opened mm. the door to a whole different world of hell. Yeah, but there's a kind of a common theme in all of this, isn't there? And and that is that you're self you're pressing another type of self destruct button, aren't you? You're you're yeah. And people, people have all sorts of ways of coping with trauma. I suppose I know the word trauma is used a lot now, but it's something I think we all understand so much better today than we did even 15, 20 years ago. But trauma is, whether it's childhood trauma or whether it's trauma at a different stage in your life for different reasons, the net effect of trauma is that it, it uh, it damages people, and they will find ways of um, either self medicating or dealing with the pain uh, in in sometimes very unhelpful ways. So, do you think you were using drinking drugs as a sort of self medicating yourself? Absolutely, yes. 
Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I needed some a, a different escape in my life. I'd evolved from one escape, and that had I had to close the door on that. Um, and then it turned into the next avenue, uh, the next escape. Yeah, the mm. next, the mm. next thing that, that I was and would doing. Would you would you have described yourself in those days as a, as a drug addict as such, or was it something that you you could quite easily not take drugs for like a week and then come back and just have a complete massive born a massive bender? Yeah, it's definitely a social thing. I've always been a worker. I, I still worked. Um, yes, it sometimes interfered with that. Um, I, um, but yeah, I could, I could switch it on and off, but at the weekends, it was all, all out. You know, it, it was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, I only really, only really worked Monday to Thursday because Friday was always a write off. Sometimes Monday club was always a big issue as well. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I, it was, it was more of a social thing, but, um, I think there did come a point one particular year where I had, I had probably, you know, a good gap. I had a good bit of money in the bank and I had a good gap off work and it became every day because a friend of mine got made redundant he got a bit of a payout um so we both sat there laughing joked and said and said well let's see how long we can last before one of us has to get a job Mm. Um, and lucky for me i I don't know how i was pretty good at the casino so we went up the casino quite a lot just playing roulette and uh, i I kept winning quite a lot of money i won quite a substantial amount of money Mm. uh, quite regularly so that kept me going for feeding the habits for quite a while longer um it was at that point i was at the peak of taking pills mm. i remember buying going to blackpool with the lads for a weekend i took a bag of 50 and in them days pills were pretty strong you didn't need that many and i mm. took a bag of rolexes uh, i remember what they were called and um i remember it so what are they like ecstasy or something or what is yeah it? yeah mm. strong strong ecstasy yeah and uh, i remember taking all them on a friday and a saturday night and um, yeah, that that was a pretty messy weekend, but some good memories made. Oh God! So, um, so you're holding down a job. Uh, you're doing, you know, you, you know, you you've stopped. Correct me if I'm wrong here. You've stopped going out and committing crime, albeit you know you're you're doing drugs, which is illegal, but it's not, I suppose, arguably harming people as much as stealing their cars off them or whatever um when did the whole fighting thing the cage fighting thing when did that all start yeah well that i think that that started not long after i last came out of prison i i needed a bit of direction in my life and that's when i bumped into well quite a few of my friends were in the fight scene anyway and they were always telling me to to come and train and do something positive. So mm. that's that's when it started. Uh, my my trainer Wayne Kirk, that fourth dimension mixed martial arts. It, back then he didn't have a gym. He he was a he was a trainer. He was an ex Royal Marine commando. He saw a bit. He, he saw a bit of potential in me, and mm. and just convinced me to come training. You know, he's like crazy. He, he just offered a bit of direction for me, uh, and that's where it all started back then. And, and it mm. did me a world of good. Um, I I used to training got me away from the drinking drugs mm. so that that was a good thing um so whenever i was training hard i wasn't doing the bad things mm. um but they still they still happened at the weekends um unless unless we were fighting mm. if we were fighting and it's 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 mostly tie boxing that i did by the way not uh not necessarily uh, 
cage fighting. It's oh, all right, okay. stand up, right. stand up for Thai boxing, full contact. Um, but uh, yeah, whenever we were fighting, I had a complete detox. Mm. Um, I didn't. Uh, we always had to pass medicals for those fights, so mm. um, we didn't. Uh, we just had a six-week detox, uh, ready to ready to fight, and, and that was a good thing as well. So I could I could switch it on and off. It wasn't. I, I wouldn't say I was in the depths of being an an addict uh, mm. with the drink and the drugs, but it was it was a problem. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's interesting, and again, at the risk of sounding like some sort of amateur psychologist here, there's clearly a, another there's another theme here, isn't there? There's a call it an addiction, but you've you had a, almost like an addiction to the adrenaline, the adrenaline and the excitement of committing crime, and then there was the drink and drugs and then there's also almost like an addiction to physical training in training your body and all of that kind of stuff does would you would you see that potentially as another form of kind of addiction yeah absolutely i mean i i'd say my my addictions have evolved mm. uh as i've got older um you know leading on to the more positive things in my life when I had children mm. that, that um I I plowed myself into being the best dad that I could be that mm. that for me was an addiction um yeah. having my biggest inspiration for being a good dad ironically is my dad mm. um, I'm, I'm I I always said if I had children I would never be what to my children what my dad was to me right like that inspired me and spurred me on to be the best that I it could be. It was like a reverse, a reverse role model almost, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I go all out for my girls, and mm -hmm. you know, I don't confess to be the perfect dad. You know, mm -hmm. I have my ups and downs, but I'm, you know, I, I, I do everything I can for my girls. Mm -hmm. Absolutely everything. I've yeah. No, I've seen that. Life. I've seen that with my own eyes, and you know, you're, you're a great dad, and uh, yeah. So, I mean. How do you how do you feel now? Is how old are you now? Forty three. Forty three. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, you did say it at the start, didn't you? Um, hmm. How do you feel now when you look back on that whole period of your life? Because it's pretty insane, isn't it? It it is. And weirdly, I've been talking about this a lot lately because of the things that I'm doing at the moment with uh, with our own charity, uh, Fight Night. Uh, I've uh, help set up with some friends from the gym. We've we've decided to, that that the local community needed a bit of a bit of help, um, and some people needed direction in their life. So we set up our own charity fight night to get people in, train them up, push them in a positive direction. So mm. um, I've been talking about my past quite a lot in the hope that I can help inspire these people that mm. are coming from bad backgrounds that you can turn it around. Yeah, uh, that's my biggest mission now. Um, but uh, but yeah, when when I look back at that period of my life, firstly, it feels like an absolute lifetime ago. Mm. It really does. You know, I've lived I've lived many different lives. Mm. It, it, it's it's bizarre. It, and I uh, it's like each one is compartmentalized. We, I had the perfect family life, and then we had the stage of the life where all the family trauma happened, and then and then I had the offending stage of my life. Where I was in a lot of trouble, and then I had the drinking drugs section of my life, and then and then I had the uh, and then I had kids, and, and and then I had the family, um, as you know, my own family aspect mm. of my life, 
And now I'm at that point now, my kids are getting a bit older where I'm now having this new revitalized section of life where I've come out of retirement to fight again. Uh, I've got myself fit. You're mentalist. <laughs> <laughs> Probably having a midlife crisis. I don't know. <laughs> Whenever I saw that, I thought, I thought it was a wind up when I saw that. I was like, oh, you're joking. Oh, mate. Like, don't do it. Don't do it. It's like I've got a, one of my best mates. He took up took up rugby when he was about 45. And I was like, what are you doing, you idiot? That's like, you, know, you never played rugby in your life. Why, it, why would you wait until you're 45 before you start playing, you know? But... Um, no, I mean, I, I really, uh, I don't know what to say really because it's just, uh, it's just mad. I mean, I, I obviously have long experience in, in policing, and I've seen many, many Craigs, many, many Craigs in through cell blocks over the years, and some of them I really, really liked. You know, I thought they were just such good fun to be around. Um, and you just really wanted to put your arm around your shoulder and just say, mate, for fuck's sake, sort yourself out, you know? Mm. But you can't do that because you're not there with them every day, you know? They're, 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 they're passing through your life for maybe a few hours, and, uh, you know, there's lots of, lots of them, and this is what people need to understand, you know, the, the Daily Mail readers, the... They they think that all criminals are just such terrible people, and actually, mm. some of them some of them are. They really really are, but yeah. But in my experience, most of them have just. I mean, I I think I always used to think about the sad, the mad, and the bad. Um, m many of them are are dealing with very very serious trauma from early stages of life and that's not to that's not to say that you you have to let them off the hook and say well it's okay to behave and carry on doing what you're doing because because it's not because it's harming other people um but there's no doubt that i think young men deal with trauma in a different way to the way that young women do and um and i do see young men like yourself at that stage of your life going hugely off the rails getting involved in all sorts of craziness and inevitably ending up either in prison on drugs or both you know but it's all but yeah. it all comes back i think to the same thing which is that they're dealing with pain and they haven't got the words or the support structures around them to be able to articulate what the issue <coughs> what the issues actually are you know so i suppose um just sort of drawing to a bit of a close really because i've got to go and sort sort of kids out and uh, kay's in london today so uh I've, I've basically left them feral in the house now um <laughs> oh dear. Carnage. <laughs> yeah, they'll be all right. Just don't, don't put the cooker on, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, what would your what would your advice be if if you had a young young Craig sat in front of you now, like a fifteen year old version of yourself? You know, what would you be saying to him now? Because <coughs> clearly, whilst you have probably had some fun committing crime, the fact that you ended up just kind of the best part of six years of your life in and out of prison was not mm. was not good was it it's not it's not and i've uh, sorry <coughs> just having a bit of a moment here but, um 
I've, I've put a lot of thought to, to exactly that. What, what could I say to somebody who's in that, in that moment a defendant? What, what could I have said to myself to pull, my, pull, me, pull myself away from that? It's a very difficult question to answer. It mm. really is. And, mm. and, 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 and still, now, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely put a lot more thought to that, see if I can come back to you with a better answer. Yeah, yeah, point. no, I'm not. That's probably a bit it's unfair. A, it's just, it's, I'm just curious. It's, it's really it's, it's, it's an it's interesting one, question. isn't it? But you talked, mm. you talked an awful lot at the start and throughout our conversation about uh, the lack of a really strong male role model. And, and I definitely think that there's, there's so much of that. I see so much of that in the young men who are running around the streets, um, forming, uh, coming together uh, in urban street gangs. Uh, they haven't got dads at home. Very few of them have got dads at home. Very few of them even know who their bloody dad is. You know? <laughs> um, and I definitely think there's a there's a huge role for 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 people like you to try and help young men who are at risk of going off the rails. You know, I do I do I think you're you're fantastic. You've, you're a very successful builder now. You've got a successful company. You've done well. Um, you're you're such a grafter. Oh my God, you're a real grafter. I mean, you. Um, I remember you telling me about some of the business ventures that you'd been running. It was like you had so many. You, had, you were spinning so many plates, you know, the cr crazy bouncy castles and like, all, sorts of, <laughs> yeah. all sorts of stuff, as well as your building and everything. Um, so you've obviously yeah. got a really, really strong work ethic. But, yeah, there's definitely something there for me about, you know, people like you working with young men to say, right, please don't make the mistakes that I made. And I think the driving thing's another one, isn't it? So if you've got a young man who's really interested in cars, then give them cars to work, you know, give them cars to work on, take them to an old banger racing track and let them taz around the banger racing track. And you know what I mean? Yeah. There's got to be something there, hasn't there? I think you've got to, you've got to nurture people's skills um, and interests. I think mm. that's a good thing. <laughs> I think um, <clears throat> looking at what, what could I have said to myself back then? I, I don't think really looking at it, it's, it, it's, um, for people to want change in their life, they've got to want it themselves. This is something that I've, I think I've said to a lot of people recently. You know, you can't, you could never convince somebody to make that change in their life. I don't think you could actually do it. Mm. You know, uh, they've got to want that change themselves and to, to be able to make that change. But um, I think better, more stable family circumstances and, yeah, male influence would have, would have, would have been a certainly beneficial to, to me back then. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, bless you. Listen, I guess not a bad point to draw to a bit of a conclusion, but um, I, I'm really, really grateful to you, mate, uh, for your honesty. It's been quite hair-raising, actually, because, I, I mean, you were very... You told me a little bit before, but you hadn't told me any of that stuff. I was like sitting there, oh, shit. You know, it's kind of hair-raising stuff, really. And you're very lucky. You're very lucky to be alive. I would suggest, really, whether it was mm. ending up, ending up, um, you know, crashing a car and killing yourself, or uh, you know, coming uh, into contact with really heavy-duty criminals who would take you out or whatever. So, so yeah, I'm. It's been 
really fascinating and I'm very grateful to you for sharing all that stuff with me and uh, with other people and um, yeah I mean if if anybody wants to sort of I'm not sure I'm not sure how we would do this but if anybody contacts me through the through the podcast let's say anybody listening to this who is working with young men um, and, and maybe you know could you could listen to this point them in the direction of this podcast and they can listen to this I sound like a right old fart now don't I you know young people don't listen to podcasts do they I know that um, and you yeah, would do. do they do you reckon well, yeah they do more than you think yeah yeah uh, well yeah I think your story is fascinating and, um, and I think it would be really helpful for people to listen to but uh, listen we'll finish mm. the conversation for the podcast now but I'll if you stay on we'll have a little chat uh, in a minute I'll just uh, stop recording but thanks a million for all your honesty and taking the time to, to chat to me craig really appreciate it yeah yeah no thank you for having me on it's been an absolute pleasure i'm uh, honored to that, you, that you'd asked me to to come on this oh, podcast no no it's it's been been a, really it was an nice. absolute no-brainer and i'm really pleased i think it's going to be really interesting for people to listen to this thank you so there you go um I uh, I've thought long and hard about that conversation. I find it fascinating and alarming and uh, a real eye opener. I've got to say, I mean, don't get me wrong. In in thirty years of policing, I spoke to an awful lot of people who were leading a criminal lifestyle, and um, you know, a lot of the sort of people who we would deal with. We're quite happy to talk off the record about uh, some of the things that they'd done, um, but we'd obviously be very tight-lipped when it came to a formal police interview. They would be very happy to give you uh, intelligence in intelligence interviews after they'd been dealt with uh, in the cell block or even in, in prison. So, you know, a lot of the things that Craig was describing there are not are not news to me in any way. Uh, they are part and parcel of understanding how criminals operate and and therefore what police need to do in order to stay try and stay kind of um, if not one step ahead of them, well at least in, in a position to stop what they're doing. And, and don't get me wrong, uh, there's no question whatsoever that had Craig and I crossed paths. Uh, when he was leading that sort of lifestyle, one hundred percent would I would have uh, done everything in my power to uh, deal with him and arrest him and prosecute him. And he knows that. I think I don't think there's any any sort of controversy there. But it is very strange to have a conversation with someone who you would uh, describe as a friend, not not a really close friend, but someone who who you know you've had uh, good times with and. Um, but then to hear him describing all of that stuff is uh, is very it's a very strange feeling. I I, I didn't uh, know quite how I felt after that um, because on one hand I wanted to get to uh, the honest truth of of what had, you know what he'd done in his life and the, the the journey that he'd taken to get to that point, um, but to do it in a way that wasn't judging him and wasn't making him feel ashamed of the things that he'd done because I've got no doubt whatsoever that in his own way he's got uh, quite enough of that uh, sort of to deal with. 
but but it was very strange to hear hear that stuff and um and i'd be i'd be lying if i was to say that i wasn't even a little bit shocked by some of that because i didn't realize whilst i knew he'd had brushes with the law and i knew that uh, he'd been in prison i didn't know what for and um and i didn't appreciate at all the level of seriousness of criminality that he had been involved in at that stage in his life so yeah that was a very weird one for me um I suppose it's important to think about some of the takeaways uh, from from that conversation, putting aside my personal uh, friendship with him, but just to sort of see Craig as a as a fairly typical young man who had become very deeply involved in crime and offending of, of really quite a serious nature. Uh, what does this tell us about um, these young men who, who who get into doing all of this stuff. Well, I suppose uh, the biggest thing for me really is the impact of trauma. And I know the word trauma is used a great deal at the moment to describe all sorts of things. And uh, Craig described uh, some of the traumatic things that he dealt with as a as a child and then as a young man. And uh, without any shadow of a doubt, I think, in my experience, I'm not a psychologist, but it seems to me that young men um, display the impact of trauma in a different way to young women. And, it, and again, without sounding like some sort of armchair psychologist, it seems to me that young women tend to turn trauma in on themselves in a destructive way. So that would lead to things like very um, abusive relationships, self-destructive lifestyle, self-destructive behavior, um, maybe drug addiction, uh, sexual exploitation, these things that they kind of, it seems to me they kind of turn that in on themselves uh, by harming themselves in those ways. Um, whereas it seems to me again, from my many dealings with young men uh, like Craig when I was you know, in those uniform roles uh, or, or detective roles, it seems that they turn that trauma uh, into a destructive and externally destructive way of behaving. So their antisocial behavior harms other people um, as well as ultimately harms themselves because they end up uh, in prison uh, having their life opportunities uh, very much diminished. And, uh, and I think there is definitely something there about uh, the way that young men deal with trauma. And you, you can see this, can't you, in these urban street gangs that I talk a lot about this, where they're posturing, they've got this very sort of toxic masculinity, they've got no positive role models. And if, if Craig said once during that conversation that he needed a strong male character in his life, he must have said that 10 times. And, and there's a real takeaway there for me and for anybody listening to this. Um, it, it very much shows the potential power of mentoring for young men who are going off the rails to have a consistent presence of a strong male role model in their life, someone who they can trust, someone who they respect, 
and and this is the important thing someone who's going to be there for them um rather than come into their lives for a short period of time and then disappear making them feel even more sort of rejected i suppose um so yeah the impact of trauma is, is a very significant one there another another thought for me was um how actually police officers and people leading that criminal lifestyle have actually got more in common than they maybe think that they have in that in that police officers and we all know how much police officers are impacted by dealing with human trauma so they may start out in the police uh having had very you know bit of a generalization here but generally speaking a lot of people who join the police have probably had fairly um you know uh, come from not come or rather better to say it the other way around they didn't come from these very dysfunctional um backgrounds with a lot of um violence and neglect and all of this kind of stuff um but then when they join the police they then are exposed to human trauma and and that weirdly puts them into the same mindset as many of the people that they're dealing with uh i you know i certainly um put myself in this category you know you 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 have a lot of um pain that you have to deal with psychological pain that you have to deal with because of some of the stuff that you deal with for years and years and years that can lead you as a police officer or an ex police officer into some quite self destructive type behavior and yeah so that was an interesting one for me to sort of think about the parallels between uh the the trauma that criminals are maybe experiencing early in life that's leading that led to them having this very damaging antisocial behavior under the trauma that police officers um face and and some of the uh impact of that on them and their families and friendships and and what have you um and then i suppose the final thing for me is is all around the capacity for change uh that we all have now whether that's change in terms of our own lives um you know you, you might you might come from a a perfectly happy background but but actually there are things about you that you would like to change and we've had people like Zane McCormick and Hannah Bailey on previously who who talked very eloquently about the capacity for individual change but in Craig's case that was change on a whole different order so this is someone who was operating uh, habitually at the most serious end of uh, the spectrum of criminality was deeply immersed uh, in that sort of uh, culture uh, all his friendship groups uh, were were young criminals and uh, there's no question whatsoever that had he continued along those lines he would have either uh moved into a much more serious um sort of organized crime group uh, probably leading serious organized crime and would have ultimately because they all do uh they all either end up in prison for a very very long period of time or they end up um dying but as you heard there Craig successfully managed to turn his life around uh he took every opportunity that he could to uh make the most of the learning and training opportunities in prison and uh, and certainly judging from a lot of the stuff that he puts out on his work related on personal facebook um site 
the work that he does now as a builder is of the highest quality. And um, yeah, and I really take my hat off to him. And, and having having seen him with his family and his kids, uh, he struck me as nothing other than a absolutely loving, dedicated family man. So I would suggest that he is relatively rare uh, in that he managed to do that because I think that by the time most young men are so immersed in that sort of lifestyle to the extent that he was, it is very, very difficult for them to turn their lives around. Um, very difficult for them to find employment and, and you know, the continual, you know, continue to be sucked into that lifestyle. Uh, very, very, uh, very hard for them to break away from it. So, so huge respect. And I know it's going to be, it's weird, actually. One of the things I was thinking last night was, gosh, I wonder, are there Nottinghamshire police officers listening to this who probably know him or knew him in, back in the day? I mean, we were talking a long time ago now. He's 43 years old. He, he, it's 20, nearly 20 years since he served his last prison sentence. But I'm quite sure there will be Nottinghamshire officers who, or ex-Nottinghamshire officers who will probably uh, know him, who have probably dealt with him. And it'd be really interesting to chat to them, um, maybe even get them together. I mean, that would be interesting, wouldn't it, to talk through some of that stuff. Um, and he, he did take some risks there, didn't he, in terms of describing stuff that he didn't get caught for. But I suppose, I suppose in truth, um, you could say that about everyone who led a criminal lifestyle. What the stuff that we catch them for in the police is only a very tiny percentage of the actual uh, full extent of their offending. So I don't think he was probably saying anything terribly unusual there. But uh, but yeah, anyway, I've probably blabbered on enough there. But uh, yeah, really thought-provoking conversation and probably one of the, would I describe that as a highlight of the podcast? Um, for me personally, I find that absolutely fascinating and I, I hope you did too. Right, I'll see you again next week. We had a policeman, he was often in our street. We used to smile and wave at him while walking on his beat. But now we never see him, it really makes us frown. No longer do we feel that we're the safest street in town. Oh. <laughs>